In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, God willing, today we're going to continue studying the book of First Kings um, that we've been studying now for several weeks. Um, does anyone remember what we spoke about last week or some of the, the main highlights of last week's Bible study? We studied chapters um, 9 and 10 in First Kings. Queen Sheba. Good. Who's that? The Queen of the South. You remember where we said she was from? Yeah, so some people say Ethiopia, yeah? And then other people say Arabia. And some people say that it's like an independent place that had both Ethiopians and Arabians there in, the, in that kingdom. Good. And who was she? What was the significance of her? Right, so she heard about the wisdom of Solomon, right? And so she traveled from her country um, and, and, and went to see Solomon. And then what was her reaction when she saw Solomon? She was in awe, right? It said even that the sp her spirit left her, and the, and the meaning like she was so in awe of what she saw that she couldn't even like, she couldn't even express it. Like she was to the point of like fainting, wanting to know. Right. Um, uh, so so sh she did that. And actually, the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, he praised her for what she did, because he said that um, she she was so wise to, to he after hearing the wisdom of Solomon that she would go and travel all that way to see Solomon. And then the Lord's point was saying, but now a greater than Solomon is here. So if the queen of the south traveled all that way to seek the wisdom of Solomon, how much more should the people of his generation be seeking his own wisdom okay so so that was one of the important events that happened uh, last time and then of course it spoke at length about the the great wealth of Solomon and and spoke about the multitude of things that he had to really give a perspective when the Lord granted him wealth and honor and all these things like it was without measure it was beyond what anyone had ever seen or whatever anyone had ever had um, before up until now, the whole focus on um, the book uh, of First Kings has been about kind of the gradual rise and ascension of King Solomon. Of course, we started out from the very beginning of how did King Solomon become king. Adonijah was his half-brother who uh, wanted to be king instead of him, and how did it was arranged for Solomon to become king. Solomon growing in his stature, growing in wisdom, growing in wealth, growing in power, building the temple, building his house. Um, dedicating the temple. We spoke about how he um, he sacrificed 120,000 sheep at the dedication of the temple, and there was not even enough space um, for all of the sheep that he was consecrating every place to, to sacrifice more sheep. So up until now, we see that um, Solomon has been very wise, making very good choices. We did notice, though, from the very beginning, that there was one thing that I had mentioned that he did was kind of like uh, maybe a, a precursor or, or an omen to what was going to be his downfall later on. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. He married the daughter of Pharaoh. Okay. And this was problematic because we know that the Lord had commanded that um, the, the Israelites take no wives from among the Gentiles because the Gentiles, being pagan, being idol worshippers, could turn their heart away from God. Solomon, in his, um, you know, in his di diplomatic way, 
and wanting to make peace and diplomatic relations with everyone, he, he felt like this was going to be a good thing for the country because he was going to make peace with Egypt, which was one of the most powerful nations. And so in this way, there would be peace between their countries, and certainly there was. And he even built a special house for the, the, the daughter of Pharaoh. But this now, um, we'll, we'll begin to see kind of like now the downfall of Solomon, which is very sad to see. Someone who had reached such a pinnacle, you know, like if, if you would say about anyone, this person is immune from going astray, like this person cannot fall, this person is so like locked in that nothing can happen to make them lose their faith, you would maybe point out Solomon. And you say, this one is the one who can never turn away, right? And we see this in, in many places actually in the scripture. People that unless you knew the rest of their story, you would think this person could never ever turn away from God. Like King David, for instance. You could say, look at how faithful David has been all throughout. There is no time that he could turn and fall into this great sin that we know he fell into. St. Peter, maybe out of all of the disciples, the last one we would have thought could be the one to deny Christ, the one who in his passionate kind of defense of Christ and even said, I will die with you and all the things that he did. He's the one who walked on the water. Like he, he did so many things that maybe if you were to have chosen any of the disciples to betray Christ, St. Peter would have been the, maybe the last one. Okay, so one thing that we learn from these stories is that no matter how close a person is to God, no matter how faithful a person is, no matter how many miracles that God does with them, no matter how much knowledge that they have, no matter like how many good deeds that they have, no matter how virtuous a person is, right? No one is, is beyond risk to fall. And this is why like the, the desert fathers and the, the, the monastics in general are so, so, so careful with the way that they live their life, right? Even though they're already monks and they've already given up all things and they are, they've, are they're, they're, they're living kind of celibate and away from the world, they do not allow themselves even like the smallest thing that could be a potentially a wedge that drives between them and God. And so they're always very careful with their senses. They're very careful with what they allow themselves to see and to do and how they use their time and so on. Very, very disciplined. Because Satan is very clever. Very clever. And we see his cleverness playing out here with Solomon. We see him playing out in many ways. Now that Solomon had, had reached this place of, of comfort and success and glory and, 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 and worship and building the temple, he now begins to feel like he can rest right and and he can now just enjoy after all of the construction was done out of all of like his life's work of building was done which took i, I think about half almost of his whole kingdom like half of his time as king now it's like okay i can enjoy myself i can enjoy the fruit of my works of the fruit of my labor i can en enjoy my life we see maybe a similar pattern that happened with his father king david when he, he he fell into sin with bathsheba because instead of going to war he was up on the rooftop of his house relaxing and that's when he saw bathsheba while everyone else was out to war and at that time it was customary for the kings to go out to war as well and yet king david did not go so this moment that we reward ourselves with relaxing with the vacations with the rest these moments that we feel like we earned them and we deserve them, right? Maybe these are the moments that the devil uses the most to attack us, right? And that maybe the reason that God actually allows us to toil as much as we do not like to toil is actually a blessing in, in, in disguise. 
As much as we don't want to be working so much, as much as we wish we had less responsibilities, as, as much as we wish that we could relax more, maybe in those moments of relaxation, in those moments of rest, this is where the worst possible things can happen to us because our minds are idle and we begin to wander, right, from um, our, our, our natural way of life. Yes. Very good question. So I would say the, the first thing is do not set rest to be a goal, which is opposite of all of us, right? Like in our society, rest is the goal. Like what is the number one thing that somebody would want is they want to retire early. They want to have a ton of money to retire early, to spend their, their rest of their life going on vacations and enjoying their life. Right? Maybe we dream of this, especially people in their offices, frustrated and upset with their boss, waiting to quit, wanting to leave, imagining what their life could have been. Why is it that people play the lottery? Because they want to be wealthy to spend the rest of their life enjoying their life. Right? So we make rest to be the goal. Instead of seeing rest as, yes, necessary, I mean, we, we, we cannot work without stopping. Even St. Anthony, when he tried to work without stopping, Right? He, he, the, the angel appeared to him to tell him what you're doing is not right. You cannot, as human beings, work without stopping. But you rest in order to go back to work. Right? You rest so you become rejuvenated and refreshed so that you can now be able to continue the work that you had begun. Right? So the goal is very different. Right? So if we put in our minds, like, yes, rest is good and important, but rest is not my goal. My goal is I want to do something good. I want to be productive. I want to do spiritual work. I want to do productive work in the world, whether it be my work, like, in, like my work, my job, whether it be my service. That is what I want to do. My goal should not be to escape from this because God actually gave it to me for my protection. And this is part of kind of the curse, right? Like in, in the Garden of Eden, what was the curse of Adam that he received after he sinned against God? That he had to toil, right? He had to toil. And so on the one hand, it was a curse because we don't want to toil. But on the other hand, it was also like a necessary thing now in our fallen state that it, we had to do it because the alternative is worse. The alternative of just being completely free and having nothing to do is worse than the toil. Okay, so that's a very important thing about how we find the balance. Of course, the, 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 the balance and what we allow ourselves to do in our rest, right? Like, like there should be a balance of what we allow ourselves to, you know, to, to, to enjoy, right? Like, um, you know, we, we, we and, and this is maybe <laughs> very difficult to define and maybe different for each person based on their income and what they're able to afford for their forms of rest. Um, but but again, don't turn rest into a, an idol, right? Don't turn it into an idol. Approach it with moderation. A approach it with the right mindset. This is not my goal. My goal is to, to rest, to be rejuvenated, so that I can go back to do something productive and useful. And actually, we see it because the people who do eventually retire from work, what is it then they begin to feel? Bored. I want to do something with my time. 
And the wise of them are the ones who say, well, now that I have more time, I can go and serve more. I can go do things more for God that I maybe didn't have the opportunity to do before. So I don't allow myself to just do nothing but recreation. Okay. Okay, verse 1. We haven't even said verse 1 yet. <coughs> but King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Okay. So what was the first problem here that you see? What's the first problem? Was it that he married Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites? Okay, so he's very focused in his own pleasure. Okay, because he's not marrying all these women because he, you know, he, he wants to offer them something, right? Like he's, he's marrying them for his own pleasure. Okay. What was the law in the Old Testament for having multiple wives? It was not acceptable. It wasn't acceptable to God, right? It was it, it was something that was practiced, but it doesn't mean that it was God's vision or ideal. Even like, for instance, when um, when when the people were speaking to uh, Christ, and He said, um, "Is it true that that someone can divorce their wife for just any reason?" Right? And what is it that Christ responded? He said, Moses was willing to, to allow you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart, because of your lack of faith, because of your weakness, right? But that doesn't mean that was God's wish. That doesn't mean that th that's what God wanted the marriage relationship to be like, where, where people would have many wives and so on. So all these people who had multiple wives, this was wrong. Actually, um, we recently made a change in Coptic Reader. I don't know, maybe some of you noticed it or not to the, the crowning ceremony when we're speaking about um, Jacob, okay? So it used to, you know, in the, in the, in the crowning ceremony, it, 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 it speaks about um, Abraham's marriage to Sarah. It speaks about Isaac's mar marriage to Rebecca. And then it would say, and Jacob's marriage to Leah and Rachel. That's what it would say. But then we said, well, this is Sayyidna saying, not me, this is Sayyidna saying. He told me this. Um, uh, well, w we shouldn't be like we we shouldn't be saying that God is blessing both of these marriages, right? Who is the one he married first? It was Leah. Leah is his lawful wife, right? Uh, Rachel shouldn't have been his wife, right? Shouldn't have been his wife. So so we are we are not saying that. So so here the first problem is he he's marrying multiple women. Period. That's a problem. Okay, but two. The women he is marrying are not even like are not Jewish, so they're 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 gonna they're gonna lead him astray um, in uh, in his faith. And as we said, this is because of his complacency, his feeling of like I have finished my work and now I can enjoy myself. And Revelations three seventeen it says, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Meaning, when we become self-satisfied with ourselves and we look at ourselves and say, now I can enjoy and I can have all of this rest and whatnot, it leads us to sin, and it's maybe a wrong perception. Um, he let down his guard, and even though he revered God very much, he didn't see or realize how this weakness and how this sin was going to impact him. You know, as we said before, if we were to list the names of people that we would have believed never would have turned from God, maybe Solomon would have been one of them. Never would have turned away from God. And yet we see that, that it happened. I'm sure Solomon believed the same. He didn't go into this thinking that this was going to be the outcome. What he went into it with is, there's nothing wrong with this. I am the king. Um, God has blessed me. God has granted me this divine wisdom. Uh, there's nothing that can happen to separate me from God. Maybe all these thoughts that, that we also sometimes think as we are contemplating sin, thinking that whatever sins that we commit are not going to have a, a long-term effect on us, but just something that's very fleeting and superficial. Um, so part of the problem is he believed that the greatest threats against him were on the outside, right? Like the enemies of Israel, those would be the threats, but no one can touch me right? Because I have high walls, I have a strong kingdom, none of those enemies on the outside can touch me. But what about the internal enemies, the inner enemies, the ones that kind of toy with our thoughts and our feelings and make us fall into sin? Those are not physical external enemies that we can see, but those are hidden enemies that kind of whisper to us in our ears at various times that get us to fall. In Proverbs 25, 28, it says, Whoever has no, has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Right? Someone who does not rule over their spirit, who does not control their emotions, who does not control their desires, who does not live with discipline, is like a city that's broken down without walls because the enemy will easily come and destroy that person. Okay? And it, ironically, King Solomon is the one who wrote that. Right? He's the one who wrote the, the book of Proverbs. Okay? So what seemed to him to be a natural desire, something that is innocent, something that will not harm him, um, ended up becoming a very, very big deal for him. Another reason why God places rules and restrictions on us that maybe sometimes we don't understand or maybe we even resent, but he places those rules because he knows that when we transgress them, when we cross that boundary, we will harm ourselves. You want to be safe? Have one wife and just live with her. And that's it. That's safe. Okay? You're going to do this, um, you're in danger. Right? You're, you're in danger for what might happen. So Solomon had a very, very wonderful beginning, but sadly he did not maintain. Right? And it, it also reminds us of the words of St. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, where, where he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Right? He started out very good as a model and example to everyone. But very sadly, that we see that this is happening to him now. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Okay. Even King Solomon, who was very faithful, very wise, he himself could not endure the, the, the environment that he allowed himself to be in. Okay? Even though of his great wisdom, 
that he heard the voice of God, that he saw the God appear in the temple as a cloud. Like, like he, he's not, no one can deny, like King Solomon cannot deny God's presence. You know, like nowadays people, of course, can be atheists, don't believe that God exists. There is no way that King Solomon could have denied the existence of God in any way, right? Because he, he saw his presence clearly. Um, and yet, even then, okay, and even though he knew that all of these other idols are nothing, his wives uh, convinced him to allow this worship to enter into Israel and to become part of the nation, okay? So even though he has this wisdom, but he allowed this wrong relationship that he had to begin to influence him, okay? So the strongest person, the wisest person can be influenced. How much more can any of us also be influenced when we put ourselves in these and these types of situations. They overcame his mind. They overcame his wisdom. It also says that even the wisest person who ever lived, not very wise, right? Like, like, like the maximum wisdom that a human being can have in the end is still liable to fall into this. Something that all of us can, as reading it from the outside, like externally looking at it, you can see, like, this is clearly wrong. It's clearly going to be a problem for you, right? But when you're in the middle of it, and you're, you're experiencing that temptation of it, and you have the ability to have it, and nothing prevents you from having it, right? Maybe the, 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 the poor choices um, are made. It reminds us also of the parable of the sower, um, the seed that fell among the thorns. It says, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful, meaning the desires of my flesh cause it to become unfruitful. Our heart becomes divided. Part of me wants to follow God and part of me wants to indulge in sin. And, it, and that part that indulges in sin poisons me so that I, can, I no longer enjoy the presence of God as before. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David. Okay? David fell into sin, but his sin was one that was short-term. Like, it was, it was short-lived. He, he, for, for a time, he, 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 he kind of lost his mind um, and, and, and was living, you know, in this way. And then he, he repented, okay? He repented pretty quickly. Solomon's sin was, was deeper, and it took longer for him to repent. We believe that he did repent. His repentance is not recorded here. But we know that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which demonstrates his repentance. And you can tell from the book of Ecclesiastes that this was written by a man who's had everything that can possibly be had in the world, right? That he experienced it firsthand, and he is telling us his, um, his, his, his experience. He's saying this is, all of this was vanity. All, all these things that I did was vanity. All the things that I had in my life were vanity, and so you can tell that he, he, he experienced repentance, okay, at the end. Um, but his repentance is not recorded here. Also, as I mentioned, his purpose of having all of these wives was very selfish. You know, when we speak about marriage, we say that marriage is a selfless act. It's, it's a place where we show love to the other person. So it is, it is, it is categorized by self-sacrifice. I am sacrificing of myself to show love to another person, and this is the way that Christ shows love to the church, okay? Whereas these marriages here uh, of King Solomon, this was not what they were about. 
this 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 was not they were they were selfish they were designed to bring him um pleasure um and he did not have this kind of relationship um with with his wives um also the thing that he 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 teaches us in the book of ecclesiastes the things that he realized is that no amount of pleasure in the world satisfies have you ever gone to a restaurant when you were very very hungry and you couldn't wait to be seated and you couldn't wait for the food to come and then you ate the food and then you're totally disgusted with the food at that point and then as you walk out the restaurant and you see more people coming into the restaurant you're like what are these crazy people coming to eat now like we're we're full the food is disgusting right and you're the same person that just an hour ago was so like like wanting this food and so this says something about us like in terms of our desire desire is so temporary and fleeting and the moment that you satisfy the desire it, it, it's like even the object of my desire is like contemptible to me the thing that i want is contemptible but very shortly i will grow hungry again and then i will want it again right and then when i satisfy myself i will again find it disgusting again right and maybe this is the relationship that we have with sin okay like i really desire something and if i give in to that desire I feel satisfied very momentarily, like this fleeting moment of satisfaction followed by disgust, right? And in that moment of disgust, maybe I say, you know what, I'm never eating again. Like, I never want to eat again, right? But then eventually we grow hungry again, right? People always decide to go on diets when they're full, not when they're hungry. And so, and this is also one of the things that King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Meaning our senses, if you satisfy them to the maximum that can be satisfied, if you give them the maximum that can be given, it is still lacking. It is still insufficient. It is still not satisfying. No amount of like these kind of physical desires, and I'm not speaking just about the sinful ones, even, even just any physical desire that I have is temporary, right? This is why when we speak about heaven, and our state in our glorified state in heaven it is not simply a state where we are where our natural desires are just satisfied it's not like a place where i have as much food as i want and then i can eat as much as i want no because even that even that state of of having all those things that i have access to is still not good enough because because the the, the very need itself right the very need itself that I am in constant need of something and that I have this like love-hate relationship with it, right? This is, this is not what God wants for us. This is something necessary here in our life as human beings in the body, right, that we experience. This is why we, in the church, like we speak about fasting. Don't give yourself, right, the desire. Don't, fi don't give in to this desire, even if the desire is not a sinful one, right? Food, desire for food is not sinful in and of itself. Like during the great fast, like when someone is abstaining from food, they're abstaining from something that is not bad. It is not bad to eat. And yet, in order for me to rule my spirit so that I can break free from this love-hate relationship with the physical desires, I train myself to know and realize that I do not need to give in to them. Yes, obviously, I need food, but I don't have to give it to myself in the quantity and in the way and in the timing that my flesh demands it. So I can rule over it, right? I can be a master over my flesh instead of being a slave to my flesh. And this is here that something, again, sadly, that King Solomon fell into, and then right later he realized the eye is not satisfied with seeing, 
and the ear is not filled with hearing, right? The more we give our senses what they want, we should not expect that we will be satisfied. Actually, we become more hungry, you know, more hungry later. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Okay, who are these gods? Ashtoreth also goes by the name Venus. You might have heard of the name Venus from uh, mythology, Venus. Um, a Canaanite goddess connected to fertility, right? And, and she was the goddess of sexual love, motherhood, and fertility. So even like this goddess that he is, he is now like accepting is a goddess of sexuality. Um, and she was one of the main female goddesses for the Canaanite tribes. She was also the goddess of the moon who was worshipped by the Greeks and the Romans under another name, you know, the, the other name, the Greek mythology name for Venus. Because you know the Roman mythology and the Greek mythology, like they believed in a lot of the same gods, but they had different names. It's a very famous one. Aphrodite, Aphrodite, okay, is the goddess of love. Um, and according to these pagan traditions, their their priestesses were actually like uh, like the 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 like it would involve sexual acts, like as part of like the worship of of these gods. And one thing that happened here uh, is that when King Solomon accepted these things, not only was it his own personal sin, but he brought the worship of these gods into Israel, right? So now it became the common practice in Israel for people to worship these gods. It wasn't just like a personal fall or a personal mistake. It became something that affected the entire nation, right? And it wasn't until King Josiah, the boy king, who came much, much later, and he is the one who banned the worship of these gods completely from Israel. Okay, so it was introduced by King Solomon. Milcom, the other god, also goes by the name Molech. Um, he was an Ammonite god, uh, and the Ammonites would offer human sacrifices to this god. Um, and they believed that he was the god of hell. Yes. Right, because because once it became, like once it became a common thing, right, uh, it was hard for people to stop. And actually, what's going to happen immediately after the reign of King Solomon is that his son is going to reign, and the the kingdoms are going to split. And when the kingdoms split, it actually this is going to get even worse. But we'll see that. Hopefully, we we'll get to that. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burnt incense and sacrificed to their gods. Um, these two gods, Molech and Chemosh, were like associated with each other. Um, and, and as I said, this now is he's building these high places. Right? These high places were like places of worship up on mountains, where the people believed that being at high altitude, it was kind of like closer to the gods. So they would worship the gods in a place closer to them. And so, so these places became then common places of worship for any of the Israelites to worship. 
So it was not just something, again, personal to him. Also, you see that he is part of the reason that he would be doing this is because he wants to appease his wives, right? His wives are coming from these backgrounds. They worship these gods. They are there married to him. They want to worship his, their, their gods, the gods that they were worshiping before, right? And so they would come to him. It's like, oh, build us this, build us this. We want to worship our gods and so on. And and this maybe is part of how this started. And King Solomon gave in, because if you can imagine, you have hundreds of wives that are all telling you, um, build for us this place of worship. You know, I mean, a husband sometimes can't even resist one wife telling him over and over and over, do this, do this, do this, and then he will do it. All right. So when you have hundreds of wives, right, they're all telling you this. I can only imagine. Right. So 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 he, he put himself in this impossible situation. OK. And there were reformers that happened like other kings that came after him. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah. Right. Those all were reformers in the sense that they like helped to remove like some of this idol worship from Israel. But again, it wasn't until the days of Josiah where these high places were completely removed, right? So it was like a long, long process that happened over a long period of time. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded, okay? What were the two times that God appeared to Solomon? Okay, when he built the temple, this was the second time. Yeah? What was the first time? When he asked for wisdom. Right? When he asked for wisdom. So the fact that it's mentioning it, it'd be like, hey, Solomon, God appeared to you two times. Right? Like, you, you're, you, you, can't, you can't claim ignorance. You can't claim... You know, like it was very clear. And actually as a part of the dedication of the temple, God and Solomon himself were, was speaking about the, the purpose of the temple and how when people fall into sin, they can come to the temple and ask God to have mercy on them and all of this, right? So, so like this is, um, this is a very bad, right, what's happening, okay? Jeremiah the prophet, the, he came later, okay? But he said the following, he said, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water these other gods that the people are going after after them they can hold no water they, they, they there's they're, they're not fruitful they're nothing good will come from this worship the other thing is um even though at the time of um the the exile when uh, the southern kingdom of judah was exiled to babylon this was like a physical exile like there's a physical event that's happening the destruction of the city the destruction of the temple the people is taken as slaves to a foreign land and people can comprehend this like they say okay this is bad like what's happening to us is bad you know we need to repent eventually the people repent and 70 years later they return but there is a spiritual um if you want to call it the spiritual exile or the spiritual desolation 
Whereas for all of the years from now until then, the people lived in sin. They lived in wickedness. They lived away from God. They physically still remained in Jerusalem. They physically still had the temple, but their hearts were far from him, which is when God made it then crystal clear with the physical exile that was to happen and what is it that happened to the nation. Okay, But with the point that I'm trying to make is that sometimes we are complacent because that physical exile has not happened to us. Like God has not judged us. We have not been condemned. Our life is continuing pretty much as normal. Nothing really has changed. Um, the blessings of God are still present in our life. But that doesn't mean that God is accepting maybe the lifestyle that we have. It doesn't mean that maybe we don't have that spiritual desolation. Maybe our house is intact, but what about our spiritual house? What about our like the, the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in me, right? Solomon here turned, right? And you notice here, there was no major calamity that happened on Solomon. There was no punishment that happened in Solomon's life apart from the natural consequences of his actions. God did not come and smite him, okay? But that doesn't mean that God was pleased with him, right? Because it says the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice, right? So, so we see this um, spiritual um, desolation happening now in the life of King Solomon and in the life of all of the people. And there was going to now be consequences, although because God loved Solomon and he loved his father David, he said, I will not do this in your life. I will do it in the life of your son. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Okay, so there is going to be, this is more consequence now of, of what is going to happen now that the people have accepted idol worship is the kingdom is going to be split in two, right? They're not going to be a united kingdom anymore. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So this punishment I'm going to do it, but in the, in, the, in the life of your son. And this is when, you know, when sometimes people are confused, does God punish the children for the sins of their parents? No, this is not a punishment for, for his son. This is the natural consequence of the actions of his father that are then going to play out in the life of his son. And there's going to be a rebellion. We speak about it um, uh, actually in the coming chapter. Um, one of the 12 tribes was going to remain, okay? Uh, which tribe do you know? Which tribe? Hmm? So the tribe of Judah is the tribe of the king. So this is the tribe of David and Solomon is the tribe of Judah. But in addition to the tribe of Judah, there was going to be one tribe that will remain to be governed by the tribe of Judah, Benjamin. So that's why you'll find that the southern kingdom of Judah is made up of those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then the remaining ten tribes are going to be in the north, in the northern kingdom um, of Israel. Also we know, one of the reasons that we know that eventually Solomon uh, repented is because in Second Chronicles 11, 17, um, this verse is referring to the Levites who chose to leave the northern kingdom due to the idol worship that was there and come back to the south. And about them, it says, 
So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam the son of Solomon strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So this verse is, is counting David and Solomon both as being righteous, right? So, so at some point it was known, of this is of course, this verse is written after the death of Solomon. So, so at some point later, Solomon's reputation, like that he repented, okay? Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the, of, uh, the king in Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom, because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom, that Hadad fled to go to Egypt. He and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, Hadad was still a child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh king of Egypt, who gave him a house, a portion food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, <coughs> so that he gave him as a wife the sister of his own wife, that is the sister of Queen Tahpanes. Then the sister of Tahpanes bore him Genubath, his son, <coughs> whom Tahpanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. <coughs> so when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me, that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, Nothing, but do let me go anyway. So what is this? There was a man in the time of King David, Hadad, who was an Edomite. This is a region that is south of Israel. And he had a grudge against King David because King David and his commander of the army, Joab, had come there and killed many of the people there. Hadad had left to go to Egypt and he lived in Pharaoh's house and actually married the sister of the queen uh, in Egypt and he was living there. After he heard that now um, that David was dead and Solomon now had become the king, he wanted to get revenge on him. Okay, so he requested of Pharaoh that now I want to leave, even though you have been very hospitable to me living here in Egypt, I want to go back to my own country. Um, and so he went. And God raised up another adversary against him, Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. So this other man, um, uh, Rezon the son of Eliada, he was yet another enemy that rose up against Solomon in addition to Hadad. So it's like a completely separate situation. Okay, completely separate story here. Um, in addition, that became an enemy, and it says he was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon. Now notice what is happening. Is now that Solomon had sinned against God, suddenly all of these people start attacking, right? Suddenly. Prior to this, I mean, King Solomon had been king now for like over 20 years, and there was no enemies all throughout this time. And yet now when... When, when Solomon has gone astray from God, God has removed his hand of blessing from Solomon 
to where now what he was protecting him from, all of these other enemies are now starting to get kind of ideas. How is it that we can begin to attack Israel? Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zarita, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now this man, Jeroboam, is very important because he is the one who is going to lead the rebellion and become the first king of the northern kingdom. Okay, So he starts out in the kingdom of Solomon. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The Milo was like a fortification. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him an officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So he had a high-ranking position um, in the kingdom. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. So this man, okay, uh, Ahijah the Shilonite, he was a prophet. He met with Jeroboam in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. So Ahijah was wearing uh, the prophet, he was wearing this garment. He took it off of him, he tore it into 12 pieces. Each of these pieces representing, what do you think, the 12 tribes. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. So here we have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. So this prophet is going and telling straight up Jeroboam the reasons why this is happening. Okay? So this was not just a simple matter of Jeroboam upset with Solomon for some reason, starting a rebellion, leading people away, and starting his own kingdom. This was the prophet of God coming to Jeroboam and in prophecy telling him, God has chosen you to be the king of this northern kingdom, and you will have ten of the tribes, and, and two of the tribes will remain in the south. And the reason this is happening is because Solomon has, has gone astray and has not worshipped me and kept my statutes as his father David did. So Jeroboam knows very well the reasons why this is happening. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler over all the days ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you 10 tribes. Okay? So now there's three adversaries against Solomon. The first one was Hadad the Idiomite, the second one was Rezon, and then the third one now is Jeroboam. And to his son I will give one tribe, and my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be 
If you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house, as I built for David and will give Israel to you. So again, God is saying essentially the same thing to Jeroboam. He's saying, if you keep my commandments, then um, I will give Israel to you and you will have an enduring house. He's pretty much replacing Solomon with Jeroboam. Okay? But out of the mercy that he is showing to David, he will allow Solomon to have just those two tribes. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon, therefore, sought to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So Solomon would have heard that this event happened. Okay? He would have heard that this event happened. And the interesting thing is that Solomon's response, uh, it was not one of, like, humility. You know, it was more of, let me kill this man. Who does he remind us of here? Saul exactly what Saul did when he knew that David was going to be the king after him instead of seeking God's mercy instead of repentance he sought to kill David okay so it's very interesting how the patterns repeat right so David was the victim of this behavior from Saul and now Sol uh, Solomon David's son is doing the same thing to Jeroboam because his focus was I want to maintain power it wasn't as much of, I want to be pleasing in the sight of God. No, it's I want to maintain power. And this was the difference between David and the rest. This is why, even though David had committed a great sin, and yet the Lord still said about him that he is a man after my own heart. Because he cared more about pleasing God than he did about maintaining his power, ma maintaining what was his own, right? And he was willing to do anything. Whatever God would have told him to do, if God would have taken the kingdom away from him, I'm sure David would have accepted it, right? He would have, he would have felt like, okay, this is, I, I brought this on myself. He wouldn't, he wouldn't kill anyone. Actually, what David did is whenever people were who killed Saul or, or harassed his family, he executed them, even though Saul was his enemy and Saul wanted to kill him. That was the, like how golden David's heart was, that he even protected Saul, who was his enemy. And when Saul had the opportunity to kill David, right, he did not. Right, And so we see here, unfortunately again with Solomon, that he is kind of going to the same pattern of behavior um, that Saul did. Yes. <coughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I don't know the, the details, but you can see clearly that Solomon lost all of his grace that he had in the eyes of the nations because even his diplomatic efforts to make peace with the king by marrying his daughter, um, Egypt doesn't really, is not really protecting him at all, right? And, and it maybe goes to show again that the true reconciliation and peace that we have is coming from God and not from these, you know, these relationships, which is why, which is which is which was the the beginning of the downfall of Solomon, and actually all throughout the Old Testament, whenever the people were were afraid of their enemies, they would go to other nations for help instead of going to God for help. 
So this is kind of a similar thing. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the king of Egypt was not trying to help Solomon here. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. So that was the total reign of Solomon for 40 years. And these books, like many times it mentions the book of the Acts of a certain king, um, these books are, 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 most of them, we don't have them. We don't, they're, they're, they're not in existence now, um, and we cannot refer back to them. But each of the kings would have like these books who would record all of the events and the important things that happen in the book. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Okay, so Jeroboam now, he is going to stay in hiding until he hears about the death of Solomon. Okay, and then he is going to come out of hiding because he knows that Solomon was trying to kill him. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So Rehoboam, as the son of the king, naturally he is going to become the next king. And at this point, the kingdom is still united, okay, as one. So Rehoboam was going to be king over the entire country. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So Jeroboam, representing a group of the people, came to him and said, Solomon was, um, you know, putting a very heavy burden on us. He was asking us to work very, very differently. When you go back to read about how all of the people were building um, the house of Solomon and the temple. Like, yes, it was very hard labor, okay? So Solomon had this, uh, maybe this tendency to push the people very hard. And so Jeroboam is coming and saying now to this new king, saying, if you lighten our load and you hear our complaints, okay, then we will uh, serve you. Now notice that, yes, It will be, but, ri but right now Jeroboam is not the king yet. Right now Jeroboam is just one of the subjects of Rehoboam. Okay, he's just uh, he's he's a man living. He has an official government position, or at least he used to, and then he was fleeing for his life from Solomon. So so right now Jeroboam isn't anything special, but Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, has just become king, and so Jeroboam is now coming to Rehoboam, asking him, please ease the workload on us, because your father made our yoke heavy. Okay, lighten the burden. Notice that the reason that Jeroboam is going to complain against Rehoboam had nothing to do with the fact that, oh, your father brought us into idol worship. You know, we are disobeying the commandments of God and nothing like that. It's just we want to, we, you know, he is preoccupied with the work, with the taxes, with, with these kinds of things. So he said to them, depart for three days and then come back to me. And the people departed. So Rehoboam told them, let me think about it. Let me think about your request and then come back to me in three days. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? So he did a wise thing. He went to the advisors of his father Solomon, and he said, how do you think I should answer? 
And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today, and serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So the counselors were wise, right? And they said, you know, someone who is coming into a new position, you want to show kindness so that the people will respect you and have a good relationship with you. And in this way, you will be able to serve the people and, and, and the people will be willing to follow you, right? So he said, listen to the complaints of the people and show them mercy, right? And then they will love you and they will serve you and they will be your subjects, okay? But Rehoboam was young and foolish. He didn't have the wisdom of his father. It says, but he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Now, you see that King Solomon, or King Rehoboam here, he was just looking for the answer that he wanted, right? Like, he already knew what he wanted to do. And he was just trying to find someone to validate it for him. And, and Rehoboam, being a young man, and being kind of like wants to flex his muscles, right? Wants to show that he wants everyone to respect him or else, right? He's not winning or earning the respect. He is kind of mandating the respect. I will, I will, I will govern you with fear and with power, okay? Which, of course, is, was not the right way, and that was not the way that Solomon did. Okay, so he went and spoke to his friends. Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. What does that mean? More harsh. Like if my father's harshness was like, my little finger, my harshness will be like my waist. Okay? So he's almost like he's shutting them down completely. He's saying, like, even just the fact that you came and spoke to me and, and, and asked me to ease this load on you, like, like it's only going to punish you now for even asking. Kind of like how Pharaoh, whenever the people came and complained and they said, we, 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 can't, we can't make the bricks, you know, he said, you know, he put even more workload um, on them. So very foolish. So you also get the sense that Rehoboam thinks he's untouchable, like he's invincible. Nothing, no one can do anything to me. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So scourges is like the whip, but with like these, these, these like metal implements on the end that will cause, uh, like, cause you to be cut, like gouge out your skin. Right, so if my if my father was chastising you with a whip, now I will chastise you with something much more severe. Right, again, like trying to flex his muscles to them. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, "Come back to me the third day." Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given them. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, "My father made your yoke heavy." but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So he answered the people in this way. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now, as we've said many times in the past, 
when the scripture speaks like this, it doesn't mean that God forced Rehoboam to act the way that he did. It means that God knew what Rehoboam would choose and is using these events in order to bring about his will. And at this point, his will is to separate the kingdom because this is what God has already said to Ahijah the Shilonite, the prophet, who already spoke to Jeroboam. Okay? Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. So essentially the people are saying, the, the house of David, which is the tribe of Judah, we have no inheritance with you. Like you are a separate tribe. You are the, the, the like essentially like go be a king to yourself. Like we are not going to follow you anymore. We are going to go see our own house. We are going to manage our own affairs. This is where the split is going to happen. Everyone is now, they're going to go and govern themselves, leaving behind the tribe of Judah. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. So he is now like trying to like, like run his government, but he w his people were rejected. Like This person is maybe trying to go and, um, and get taxes from the people, the Israelites, the northern kingdom. They, was, they were rejected. Therefore King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now notice that uh, w he was in the northern kingdom when this happened. So, so when the people rebelled, he fled quickly to go to the south, to the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is in the region of Judah, okay? And that's where he is. Now, this is a very important point, okay? What's the most important thing in Jerusalem? <coughs> the temple, okay? <coughs> now, it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him <coughs> and called him to the congregation, and made him king over all Israel. So it's, it, don't be confused. Now, it used to be the term Israel is referring to the whole kingdom. Now the term Israel is referring only to the northern kingdom. And the term Judah is referring to the southern kingdom. So from this point on, in the books of Kings and the Chronicles, anytime you hear about the king of Israel, it's the king of the northern kingdom. The king of Judah is the southern kingdom. Okay. Um, there was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And, and here, so as not to get confused um, when it's speaking about the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin kind of became absorbed into the tribe of Judah. Okay, so sometimes it's going to refer to it as just the tribe of Judah, but that really means Judah and Benjamin. Okay? And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So he wanted to fight um, to, 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 to quell this rebellion. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. So he was getting ready to go fight. God told him, 
through this man, Shemaiah, do not go. Don't go fight your brethren. Uh, this is, this is, I am allowing this to happen. Don't, don't go and fight against them. And so they turned back. Then Jeroboam built Shechem and the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. Okay, so you can kind of see a little bit in this map. The northern part in yellow there is Israel. Shechem was the capital. That's the kingdom of Jeroboam. And then in the south, Judah. Jerusalem is its capital. And the king is Rehoboam. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Okay. <laughs> All right, now this is where it gets more sticky. And Jeroboam said in his heart. So up until now, what is it that Jeroboam has, has done wrong? Up, up until now. Yeah, no, actually, but he didn't split the people, right? Because God came to him through the prophet and said, this is what you will do. So he's just, it wasn't in the mind of Jeroboam to make a rebellion, right? God came to him and said, there will be, this is what we're going to happen. You are going to be the king. And not only that, but he made promises to him. And he said, if you remain loyal to me and you follow my commandments, that your house will endure. Like, like he, he, he made everything like very open in front of him, like he was willing to give him all the blessings. So up until now, Jeroboam has not done anything wrong. Jeroboam actually followed what God said. Okay, but now what is going to happen? Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. What is he saying? Because the people, why is it that the people are going to go to the house of David? Or to offer sacrifice. Because the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem is where the temple is. And there's only one temple. And everyone was required to go to the temple to offer sacrifice there. So in the mind of Jeroboam, if my people have to go to the kingdom of Judah in order to offer sacrifice, then what's to keep them from just going and living there? Like they're all going to leave because I don't have a temple. I don't have something equivalent to the temple, right? They will all go. They will go to the, to the land of Jeroboam. And then eventually Rehoboam will essentially take over the whole kingdom again and they will kill me, right? This is in the mind of Jeroboam. This is what he's thinking. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Okay, so disregarding everything, disregarding everything that he knew, and disregarding the reason why God split the kingdom from Solomon to begin with, and just in his own thinking and mind, saying, Oh, well, uh, I want the people to stay, so I will attract them to stay. I will lure them to stay. I will tell them, you don't need to go to the temple to offer anything there because we have these golden calves, and these are the God. This is God who brought us up from the land of Egypt, right? So you, there's no reason for you to go anywhere, right? And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So if you see where Bethel and Dan are, Dan is like the very northern part of the northern kingdom, and Bethel is... 
very close to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is right across the border from Bethel. Okay, and actually the, the, the name Bethel means house of God. So, so he, Jeroboam is a try. He's saying he's this is insurance policy for him, right? So he's saying I don't want my people to go. Just come and stay here, and we worship our own way. We worship our own way. Now, keep in mind, God had blessed Jeroboam to be the king. He brought him to be the king. He told him his kingdom would endure. If if Jeroboam had simply followed what God had said and not deviated, then God would have blessed his kingdom, right? Would have blessed his kingdom. But because now Jeroboam is actually encouraging more idol worship and the northern kingdom is actually going to become more wicked than the southern kingdom. Because eventually what's going to happen is the southern kingdom is going to be exiled, but they will return again. The northern kingdom, ten tribes are going to be exiled and never return. They're just going to completely dissolve into the rest of the world, never to return again. Okay. Now this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. So again, we know the priests were supposed to come from the children of Aaron, which were the tribe of Levi. He is not following. He's making his own religion now. He's completely inventing everything in order to attract the people and to, to keep them there. Okay. Um, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. He's creating a feast like the feast that was in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month in the month which he had devised in his own heart, right? Because he created this feast out of nothing. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. So he is essentially has taken the place of God, right? He's creating feasts. He's creating idols. He's telling people who come and worship these idols. His wickedness is even greater than the wickedness um, in the south. And, and this is going to continue, okay? So his purpose here was how can I use the religion to gain power? Right, his his interest was not how how do I bring people to the true faith? How do I encourage people to sacrifice to the true God? It was how do I use this situation in order to secure my place, thinking that he was actually securing his place, but actually he was not, because the only way for his place to be secured is with the blessings of God, and he no longer had it. Did you have yes? So the reason that the people rebelled had nothing to do with the religious practices, right? They were talking about you're putting heavy burdens on us and the taxation and all that. So that was, their, that was the reason for the rebellion. So Jeroboam now, yes, he has a different system of worship, but there was already idol worshiping happening before. So the people are not rebelling as long as they are comfortable, right? Like you make us to feel comfortable. Our taxes are low. We don't have to do all of this manual labor. We are happy with you, Jeroboam. 
And so that's what they were thinking about. They were thinking more about like their physical comfort rather than they were thinking about anything else. As far as the Levites, um, actually the verse that I read earlier from First Chronicles where God is praising some of the Levites who after this situation chose to move from the northern kingdom down to the south because there were some who knew that this was wrong and so they didn't want to be a part of that. So they chose to, to move back down to the south and to continue their ministry in the temple. It wouldn't be all, but there were some who did. Yeah. Well, this is the precursor to Samaria, or am I wrong? So Samaria came about because after the exile happened, so who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans are a mix between the Gentiles and the Jews. Okay, so after the uh, after the exile, okay, there was a, a remnant of the Jewish people that remained, okay, in Israel. But all of the other Gentile nations began to encroach because now Israel is is, is gone. So they began to intermarry together, and so that mix between those two is what became the Samaritans. So this not not yet, yeah, not yet, because we're not talking. There's no Gentiles yet. I mean, right now it's predominantly Jewish. It's only at the exile that the Gentiles come in. Okay? Glory be to God forever, man. can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing, and we ask, O Lord, that you help us to, to learn the valuable lessons that we can learn from your servant, King Solomon. We ask, O oh God, that you do not allow us to be complacent or to think, O oh Lord, that we are secure in whatever place that we are, but to always cling to you, O oh Lord, and to be disciplined in our life, always seeking, O oh Lord, your mercy, repenting of our sins and confessing them frequently, always caring, O oh Lord, about the truth of your word, to read it, understand it, and carry it with us in our hearts. We ask that you protect us, O oh Lord, from all this wicked generation and from all the sin and evil that is around us. We ask, O oh God, that you grant us to be beacons of light to bring those, O oh Lord, who are far away from you to your heavenly kingdom. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. <laughs>